everyone. Welcome back to the Doctrine, Dogma, and Davide podcast. My name is Davide Jonas Terpi, and today I want to continue my response to Mike Gendron in a talk he gave to Resolve Bible Church. Uh, this is the second video in a series, so if you haven't seen the first video, go ahead and pause this video and go watch that one first. I'll have it linked down in the description. I'll also have Mike Gendron's entire talk linked in the description as well if you want to check that out. But without further ado, let's just go ahead and dive right back into the video. So let's look at the differences between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Christians. There are seven that I'd like you to look at. We have a different church. We submit to a different authority. We worship and trust a different Jesus. We believe a different gospel. We have a different view of Mary. And please don't miss this. We have a different view of sin. And ultimately, this leads to a different path to eternity. So each of these seven differences is like kind of sort of true. And I, I can sort of nitpick each one of these. For instance, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that evangelical Protestants have a different church, when in actuality, they have actually hundreds of different churches. Um, and it's also not fair to say that we have a different authority. I would say that Catholics have additional authorities to Scripture, whereas evangelical Protestants only have Scripture. Uh, as far as a different Jesus, a different gospel, um, I, I would say that like we definitely have certain different views on Jesus, different views on the gospel, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that we have an entirely different Jesus or an entirely different gospel, because as Mike Gendron has said earlier in his talk, we do share certain sort of fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of the gospel are things that we share as Christians, both Catholics and evangelicals. So like I said, I can sort of nitpick all of these, but I, I want to save that for when we go into detail on each one of these. So let's look at each one of these with a little bit more detail. The Christian church has only one head. We know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Catholic church has two heads. They believe the papacy is the head of not only the Catholic church, but they believe he's the head of the Christian church at large. So I think that this is a, a bit of an unfair characterization of the headship of the respective churches, both the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches, because even in Protestant churches, you hel you do have people like pastors and things who take on leadership roles within the respective churches and sort of guide the church along in their path through various policies and, and through their teachings as well. And so it's not like Jesus Christ himself is standing in, in the Protestant congregations and teaching them directly, right? No, you have people who take the scriptures and help uh, to sort of explain and try to teach the congregations about uh, what Jesus said and about his life and about his teachings. Now, on the Catholic side, we do have Jesus Christ as our head. Jesus Christ is king. But just because Jesus Christ is king, that doesn't mean that the king cannot appoint certain, say, prime ministers or officials in order to manage the sort of day-to-day -day governance of his kingdom and to head and guide his church. Now, that in no way takes away from the authority of the king that appointed those ministers. So, Jesus Christ as king, as head of the Catholic Church, can appoint sort of intermediate heads in the bishops and through his sort of prime minister, the successor of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, in order to sort of guide and govern the church on earth, even as Christ is king who reigns over that church in heaven and exerts his influence in choosing his prime minister in order to guide his church. 
So in a sense, we do kind of have two heads in the same sense that, say, the United Kingdom has two heads. They have a head of state in King Charles III and a head of government in the prime minister. But unlike in the United Kingdom, where the constitution basically requires the king to appoint whoever uh, the majority party in parliament selects, the prime minister of the Church of Christ, the prime minister of the Catholic Church, the pope, is selected by the, uh, the cardinals under the guidance and influence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. How do you join the Church of Jesus Christ? Only by, water bat only by infant baptism. Excuse me, I'm getting that confused. Only by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I got ahead of myself. We are made members of the Church of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God makes us alive in Christ. But the Roman Catholic Church says it's by water baptism. That's how you join the Catholic Church. So water baptism is also just very clearly taught in Scripture. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 36 through 39, it states, And they went along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught up with Philip, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. It's also worth noting that, like I said in my last video, Origen was teaching baptismal regeneration and infant baptism as early as the second century. And so this is something that the early church also believed and practiced as well. So scripture pretty darn clearly implies that water is necessary for baptism. Additionally, Jesus Christ himself was baptized by water, and only after he was baptized by water, you saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so it is clear through the life of Jesus, through the acts of the apostles, and through the tradition of the early church that water baptism is the means by which we receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, again, this is something that even Martin Luther taught. Martin Luther stated, quote, No greater jewel, therefore, can adorn our body and soul than baptism, for through it we become completely holy and blessed, which no other kind of life and no work on earth can acquire. So again, this is something that even Martin Luther himself was forced to accept simply because the scriptures are so clear. And I also think that it's a little bit silly to say that, well, you know, the early church practiced water baptism, the apostles clearly practiced water baptism, but I, I know better. I, I think that that's kind of ridiculous to say that you know better than the people that actually knew Christ. Every member of the Lord's church is sanctified by the truth. Members of the Catholic church are inclusive and tolerant of all other religions. Um, you may have just seen last week the Pope signed a unity accord with Muslims. You know, his goal is to unite the whole world together. And it's um, very interesting when you look at biblical prophecy, we know there's going to be one church that comes together to worship the Antichrist. And the Pope has got a very aggressive agenda to unite the world under the papacy. All right, so the charge that the Catholic Church is tolerant and inclusive, I feel like, like this is a very loaded accusation because 
its veracity depends largely on what what you mean by tolerant and inclusive. What do you mean by those words? Because I would argue that the Catholic Church, yes, is tolerant, but it's not inclusive. And e even in saying that, I, I know that there are Catholics who will sort of like bristle at my saying that the Catholic Church is tolerant. Because, again, it's, it's a very semantically overloaded term, and is a term that means a lot of different things in today's day and age. It's one that's thrown out a lot to justify all sorts of things that the Church would not condone. So when I say that I would argue that the Church is tolerant, what I'm talking about is that the Church does support sort of the toleration, the, the civil toleration of false faiths. The Second Vatican Council stated, quote, This Vatican Council declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups or of any human power in such ways that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others, within due limits. And so the Catholic Church supports sort of religious liberty in the sense that the secular uh, government, the civil authorities, have no right to compel or coerce faith on the part of their citizens or their subjects. The fact of the matter is, you know, our faith in Jesus Christ, it must be a free choice, and no civil authority has the right to impose that faith or that worship practice upon us as individuals. But the church is not so tolerant that it would place sort of a false equivalency between a false faith and a true faith, between, say, Islam and Christianity. The church, especially during the Second Vatican Council, did sort of uh, make an effort to emphasize the similarities that we share with Muslims as well as with Protestants and Jews and Hindus, Buddhists, whatever the case may be. The Catholic church does sort of seek to start from a position of recognizing where we align before then attempting to discuss where we differ. And the reason for this, it's a sort of uh, evangelical strategy called ecumenism. And what that essentially means is that by focusing on what the things we share in common as religious people, even as we differ on very important and fundamental questions of theology, if we start out with where we agree, it can help people who uh, adhere to false faiths and false religions, it can help them to see themselves as being closer to the truths of the one true holy Catholic and apostolic faith, and so makes sort of the transition from their false religious practice to the true faith uh, an easier transition if we start from where we agree and we sort of try to minimize the differences between us. Now, there are some in the church who I think take uh, ecumenism the wrong way, and believe that sort of the interreligious dialogue, that ecumenism, that, you know, focusing on where we agree, that that is sort of a good and an end in and of itself, without serving that primary purpose of evangelization and bringing people into the one true church of Christ. Because ultimately, the church teaches that there is no one else other than Jesus Christ by whom we are saved, and that there is no other church other than the church that Christ himself established in the apostles, which is the Catholic church. And so, the, and so the Council of Trent decreed extra ecclesiam nalis salus, which means outside of the church there is no salvation. And so the church certainly is not inclusive and tolerant to the point of believing in a sort of religious indifferentism that basically, oh, you can be 
Protestant, you can be Hindu, you can be Muslim, you, you can be whatever faith you want, you know, we're all basically going to heaven anyway. That's not what the church teaches. The church teaches that you must join the one true church of Christ. You must come to faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The church simply teaches that no secular authority, no civil authority, has the right to impose or try to compel that faith or that practice or that adherence upon an individual, that that choice to come to faith in Christ must be a free choice of the individual. That's ultimately what the church teaches. In fact, even in the Second Vatican Council's document Lumen Gentium, which is sometimes criticized for being sort of too soft and too inclusive by many traditional Catholics, it states, this is the one church of Christ, which in the creed is professed as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all ages as, quote, the pillar and mainstay of the truth, close quote. The church constituted and organized in the world as a society subsists, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him, although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure. These elements as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. Vatican II even goes on to say, this sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful, basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition. It teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation. Christ present to us in his holy body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and of baptism, and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church, for through baptism as through a door men entered the church. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or to remain in it, could not be saved. So again, even in Vatican II, who some traditional Catholics will sort of criticize for being a little bit soft on sort of being too inclusive and too tolerant, even Vatican II affirms that the Catholic Church is the one true Church of Christ, and that outside of the Church there can be no salvation. Anyone who rejects the Church of Christ, anyone who rejects faith in Jesus Christ, is lost forever. They cannot be saved. Now, as far as the unity accord between Muslims and Catholics that Pope Francis signed, there are many people who would have criticisms for Pope Francis for his decision to sign that declaration, and I have my own criticisms. But it's important to note that the Pope is not infallible in everything that he does. And again, we're going to get into this a little bit later when Mike Gendron talks specifically about the papacy. But Pope Francis, just because he signs a unity accord where it basically lays out a bunch of areas where Catholics and Muslims have common ground and agreement, that doesn't deny the essential salvific power of the gospel and the necessity of the Catholic Church. It's again that sort of ecumenical idea that if we focus on what we share in common, then we can have more fruitful discussion about where we disagree. Now, Pope Francis has gotten a lot of criticism, especially from traditional Catholics, and I, I personally do share some of those criticisms when he said that the diversity of religions is willed by God. Now, Pope Francis later clarified in a private meeting with Bishop Athanasius Schneider that he was talking about God's uh, consequent will, not his affirmative will, his, uh, his passive will rather than his active will. 
which basically means that God's will extends over everything that occurs. That basically God has an active will, which is what he wants to happen, and he has a passive or a consequent will, which is his divine plan that incorporates the disorder and the sins of the world into his larger plan. Pope Francis signed the declaration stating that God wills the diversity of religion. What he claims to have been trying to say is that God wills the diversity of religion in the same sort of sense that God wills sin, in that he incorporates sin into his divine will, and he arranges for that will to serve sort of the greater good of salvation. But not that he affirmatively wishes for the diversity of religions to take place, because God wishes all of us to be one in Jesus Christ. And so I think it's perfectly fair to criticize the Pope for maybe signing an ill-advised declaration, but that doesn't undermine what the Church definitively teaches. Just because the Pope, you know, signs a certain declaration or even uh, makes a statement, the Pope can make erroneous statements. There was one time he issued a commemorative stamp of Martin Luther and said that Catholics, Lutherans, and Protestants all agree on the doctrine of justification. No, we do not. That's not true, right? But Pope Francis was not speaking in an authoritative way. At the end of the day, the Pope is not infallible in everything that he says and does. So I guess, ultimately, the question of whether or not the Church is inclusive and tolerant, as Mike Gendron says here, it really depends on just what you mean by inclusive and tolerant, because the, the terms mean different things to different people right now. The Christian Church is spirit-led, the Catholic Church is man-centered. So Mike doesn't uh, explicitly state exactly what makes the Church man-centered, but sort of reading between the lines, I believe his accusation here is that because the church recognizes sources of authority beyond scripture. Namely, we recognize the fact that Jesus Christ delegated very real authority to the apostles and to the descendants of the apostles, that that therefore makes our church man-centered. But I think that that's a really dangerous line of thinking to go down, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, even the holy scriptures were ultimately, they were written by men. Jesus Christ never wrote anything down. The, the only time he wrote, according to our best records, is when he was writing in the sand, when the woman who was caught in adultery was about to be stoned. And we don't even know what he wrote there. And so Jesus Christ didn't re write the New Testament. It was written by men. It was written by men under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And if God would make sure that those who were inspired to write the Holy Scriptures would be free from error, then it doesn't take a huge leap of logic to believe that God would also protect his church from error in a similar fashion. So while the scriptures are sufficient insofar as, you know, they contain all of the revelation that we need, there is nothing revelatory that comes from the church's statements and declarations, but God granted a certain protection that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, that the church would remain true to the deposit of faith that was left by Jesus Christ. And scripture is also very clear in the fact that the apostles were granted very real authority, and that that authority was then passed down to their successors. So John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23 states, quote, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So in this passage, Jesus is delegating authority to the apostles to forgive and to retain sins. And he is 
passing on this authority. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. He passes that authority to the apostles, and the apostles then pass that authority on further through the laying on of hands as described in the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 6 of the Acts of the Apostles, verses 2 through 7, states, quote, And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Additionally, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, he states, quote, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor participate in another man's sins. Keep yourself pure. And so Paul is stating in 1 Timothy how important and significant it is that you not be too hasty in the laying on of hands because the authority that is passed on by the laying on of the hands by the apostolic succession is very real and very significant and is not something to be taken lightly. Additionally, St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the year 110 AD where the bishop appears, let the people be, just as where Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. As, additionally, the historian Eusebius wrote in the year 312 AD, Paul testifies that Christians was sent to Gaul, but Linus, whom he mentions in the second epistle to Timothy as his companion at Rome, was Peter's successor in the episcopate of the church there, as has already been shown. Clement also, who was appointed third bishop of the church of Rome, was, as Paul testifies, his co-laborer and fellow soldier. And so it is clear to me from scripture and from the traditions of the early church that Christ delegated very real authority to the apostles and that the apostles, in obedience to Christ and to the Holy Spirit, continued to pass on that authority through the apostolic succession of bishops so that the church may continue to be guided by the Holy Spirit and protected from error until the end of time. But that recognition of the delegated authority that Christ gave to the apostles in no way means that the Catholic Church is man-centered simply because Christ chose to delegate his authority to them. Any more than it undermined the authority of God when he delegated authority to the priests and judges and prophets of the Old Testament. Every member of God's church is, has their name enrolled in heaven. This disqualifies the Roman Catholic Church because they say their members can go to hell if they die in mortal sin. So those who exist in a state of sanctifying grace do indeed have their names enrolled in heaven, but that does not mean that you cannot forfeit your place in heaven by wicked deeds, and scripture clearly affirms this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, it states, quote, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, also another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done, 
and the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so Revelation clearly describes people being judged according to their deeds, according to what they have done. And if they were found to have uh, those wicked deeds to their names that were not properly forgiven, then they would be cast into the eternal fire. And so scripture itself affirms that you know, you can go to hell if you do not have just deeds to your name. If you live a life of wickedness and rejection of the gospel of Christ, even if you have faith, that is not sufficient to save you. And that is also reaffirmed in the epistle of St. James. In the epistle of St. James, chapter 2, verse 21 through 26, it states, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So if you cannot confidently say that man is justified by works and not by faith alone, then you are rejecting the direct words of scripture because James explicitly states in the scriptures, this is the infallible word of God, that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You cannot reject that without directly contradicting the sacred scriptures. We know we can never go to hell once we've been born of the Spirit of God because of that great promise in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is true. There is no condemnation for he who is in Christ Jesus. The question is, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Martin Luther said that he could commit adultery against his wife a thousand times in a day and still be in Christ Jesus and still be in a state of grace. I reject that, and I think the scriptures reject that. To be in Christ Jesus means to have faith in him, yes, and it also means to live in accordance with his laws and his decrees. If you reject the gospel by your actions just because you have faith, that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. And so, yes, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But in order to remain in Christ Jesus, we must keep the law. We must have just deeds to our name. And this is what scripture affirms. The Christian church has two ordinances. The Catholic church has seven sacraments. So this is true. We have seven sacraments given by Christ and entrusted to the church in order to give grace. They are visible signs of invisible realities, and each one of them has their roots in the sacred scriptures. I'm not going to go through every single scripture here and explain its biblical roots. I think that that deserves a video all on its own. The Christian church contends earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The Catholic Church departed from the faith of the apostles. The Christian Church proclaims the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Catholic Church distorts the gospel of Christ. 
So it's simply not true that the Catholic Church proselytizes other faiths or doesn't contend to the faith. I'm going to cite again Lumen Gentium, where it said, quote, Wherefore, to promote the glory of God and procure the salvation of all these, and mindful of the command of the Lord, preach the gospel to every creature, the church fosters the missions with care and attention. The Catholic Church has always and very consistently fostered the missions and sent out missionaries to the furthest ends of the earth in order to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim the risen Christ. Now, you can argue that the church has sort of dropped the ball in recent years and has sort of de-emphasized the importance of the missions, and there has been an insufficient emphasis on preaching the gospel to everyone, and I would share those criticisms. I think that the church does need sort of a renewal of its missionary zeal and spirit, but that does not by any means mean that the church does not care about the salvation of souls, does not care about preaching the gospel, or much less that the church is proselytizing other faiths. The, the church proclaims the one true faith of Jesus Christ that was forever de delivered to the apostles and entrusted to the church to preserve and to protect the deposit of the faith that Christ gave us. So I think that that's a pretty good stopping point for part two. Uh, be sure to come back next week for part three, or you can, of course, uh, subscribe to my Patreon and get access to all of my videos a little bit early. But I hope you enjoyed this video. I hope it was spiritually fruitful for you. If you liked it, be sure to like, favorite, subscribe, do whatever it is people of the internet do, and I will see you all next week. Gloria.